You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In the last lecture, we saw how important are the various modes of thought, the poetic, the rhetorical, the dialectic, and the scientific for philosophy, but especially theology, hermeneutics, and exegesis. In conclusion of that lecture, I mentioned that mathematics is an important tool because it gives us a very clear model of the logical and of logical relations between things. And this brings us then to the question of modern science. I want especially to emphasize that if we are to interpret theology to our culture, a culture which is largely determined by the advance of modern science and the technology that has come from modern science, we must be able to bring theology into contact with natural science. I mentioned Karl Rahner, the great theologian of Vatican II, so influential in modern theology. And he said in his last years that he did not know a great deal about modern science. And that caused his theology to be rather abstract in character. We have to overcome that problem in theology. We have to bring it into direct contact with science. We can't avoid this by saying, as some people do, well, science operates on one level and theology operates on another level. Very true. Of course, they are very different, and natural science is not the same as that ultimate kind of philosophy that we call metaphysics. Nevertheless, if there is not some positive relationship between science and metaphysics and theology, they are going to be in conflict with each other. They can't simply go their own ways in indifference to the other. The great founders of modern science, Galileo, William Harvey, the discoverer of the blood, later Newton, and Descartes, too, whom I talked about earlier. These men who founded modern science believed devoutly that science would contribute to theology. That because God is the creator, the knowledge of his creation will help us to understand the creator better. They saw science as positively related to theology. The negative relation, the divorce, the war between religion and science began afterwards. And in this lecture, we need to try to understand why that war took place and what the possible remedy for it is. 
because medieval theology had been so closely linked to the thought of Aristotle and of Plato. When this was discredited by reason of the Copernican theory that the earth moves around the sun and rotates on its own axis, which was quite contrary to what Aristotle had thought. And what is more important, when Galileo looked through his telescope and saw the sunspots and therefore realized that the heavens are made out of the same kind of material that we experience here on earth, when Aristotle had supposed that the regular motion of the heavens meant that they were of a different kind of material that was not subject to friction and alteration. When Galileo saw the sunspots, Aristotle's reputation was destroyed. But there was a mistake in that. And we can understand why that abandonment of Aristotle was a mistake if we consider this fact. We look at the world with our senses, our naked senses, without instruments, without telescope, without microscope. And we look at things in their natural settings. We observe animals in their native habitat, not in the zoo. We don't use controlled experiments to get through the day. We take things as they are. We do not manipulate them. Now, that kind of knowledge, that very basic knowledge, which is without artifice, which is our natural contact with the real world, must be the foundation of all our other knowledge. If it is not, then our other knowledge can be false, and we cannot recognize it. Ultimately, we have to test what we see through the microscope, the telescope, by what we can see with our unaided eye. We turn the telescope on some familiar object and see that it simply magnifies it and does not distort it. Then we can trust what we see through the telescope. But unless we could do that, unless our unaided senses give us the truth about the world, then we can't trust what we see through the telescope and the microscope. And the same thing is true of controlled experiments. We can't simply study the animal in the zoo. We have to understand him in the forest. This root of all of our knowledge of the world in our unaided senses is the fundamental point that Aristotle was making against Plato and the spiritualists. But it also has to be made against the materialist, because, as I said before, the materialists have been influenced by Descartes to believe that what we first know are not the sense objects, but merely sense impressions, something within our body which is somehow reflects the external world, but which is untrustworthy. If we begin that way, then all of natural science becomes 
problematic. There has to be a link between ordinary knowledge of the senses and the most remote thing that science explores. That doesn't mean that we are saying that at the microscopic level or at the macroscopic level of the whole universe that things are just like what we see here. We needn't conclude that. Very small things can be very different than the ordinary things of experience. The universe as a whole may be very different than what we see in our small region of the universe. But our access of knowledge to the very small and the very large has to be through what we see here and now. If we keep that in mind, then we see the fact that Aristotle's science was overthrown with regard to its details, such as the motion of the earth, which is something very hard to figure out because we all know that you judge motions relatively. When you stand on a train station, for a moment you may not know whether it's a train that is moving or you are moving. The Greeks understood that. Anyone who has thought about it knows that that question cannot be settled by just ordinary observation. We can't get off the earth to tell that. It's a more complicated problem. But that Aristotle made serious mistakes at this level, the more detailed part of science, does not mean that he made mistakes with regard to the fundamentals of science, which have to do with ordinary experience. I said earlier that the philosophical aspect of knowledge is consideration of the foundations of any field of knowledge, and that is what we're dealing with here. We have to ask about what are the foundations of natural science, and I pointed out that often in reading a physics textbook, the foundations are passed over very quickly without much reflection. That is really the condition of modern science. Once that Aristotle detailed science was exploded, people ceased to think about his much more important thinking about foundations of science. And what did they substitute for it? Instead of Aristotle's physics, in which he studies the question of matter, of space, of time, and so on, they substituted the foundational thinking of Democritus, a Greek older than Aristotle, whose ideas Aristotle had severely criticized, a mechanistic view of the world. Consequently, throughout the 17th and 18th and into the 19th century, science was explained on foundations that were mechanistic. With the coming of Einstein, mechanism collapsed. It became clear that that kind of mechanistic thinking, that sort of foundational thinking, did not correspond to the facts. However, Nothing has quite replaced it in the thinking of modern science.
I recently was in a conference at which there were several quantum physicists of reputation present. And when it was asked them, what does quantum physics tell us about physical reality? Their answer was, it's a wonderfully successful mathematical model. It will enable us to predict events very well. But what those events are in reality, we don't know. There are various interpretations, but none of them are satisfactory. Now, if our purpose is to understand physical, natural reality, then that is an admission of something seriously wrong with natural science. The theologian, therefore, who is going to try to find a way to speak to the natural scientist and to hear what they have to say and use that to interpret that to our present culture is going to have to give some thought, not to the details of science. That takes years of study. You can learn something about it from the popularizing works, which are often very good, but are also sometimes misleading. You can learn enough about that. What you need to do as a theologian is to think about the foundations of natural science. Now let me explain for the moment the way that Aristotle goes about that. I can't spend much time on it, but it may give you an idea of what kind of reflection we need about our ordinary experience, how to describe the things that we see every day and deal with every day, and the things that must ultimately be the test of all of our knowledge. Aristotle says that in science we have to ask four big questions. We ask them at the very general level, and then we come down to subdivisions, 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 until we finally get to the species of things. As you would, for example, in zoology, when you begin with a notion of animal, and then you divide it into one-celled animal and many-celled animals. And then you divide the many-celled animals into the vertebrates and invertebrates, and so on. You go from very general conceptions down to very particular conceptions. The foundations of natural science have to do with the description of those properties which are common to everything that changes. Aristotle's emphasis in his foundational reflections are on the changing character of the world. Sometimes you hear that Aristotle's philosophy is static. Nothing could be falser than that. Of all the Greek philosophers, he is the one who was most concerned to deal with the changing dynamic character of the world because that's what we first know. The things we know are all changing. That doesn't mean that, like Heraclitus said, that they change every minute. No, they have a certain stability for a little while. They come into existence, stay for a while, act in a certain natural way, and then are destroyed. 
Our world is a changing world of things that have only relative stability and relative permanence. But relative permanence is what makes science possible. If things changed every moment, then there could be no scientific laws. But the fact that they have a certain stability makes it possible to state scientific laws and to make some kind of predictions. So Aristotle says we have to ask four questions at every level, the general level, the more special level, all the way down to the species. The four questions are, first, does it exist? Later on in philosophy, after Descartes, Leibniz was to say that philosophy is about the possible. The things that we can think of might be, but can't be so, because unless something is real, actually existing, we can't know anything about it at all. Our fancies about it may be contradictory and completely false. We have to begin with what exists. And so science first asks, does something here exist that I can study? If the biologist finds a living thing to study, the physicist finds a material object to study, and he has to know it's real. We know that things are real primarily by touching them. Nothing gives us assurance that we are not just dreaming or fantasizing, like the sense of touch. It's by the tangibility of things that we answer the first question, does it exist? Then we have to ask, what is it? As we first know it, it's a very vague object. We're not sure what it is. And we try to understand it. Now, Aristotle tells us that since it is changing, it must have two aspects. It has a formal aspect. That is what it actually is. Here is an animal. It's actually this big, this color. It's running around. It's doing these things. That's its actuality. But because it's a changing thing, it has potentialities. That is, it can become something else. Everything exists in becoming with potentiality. And that's what Aristotle means by matter, something rather different than the physics books today mean by matter. Matter is simply the changeability of the things we see in their actuality. And those two things make up a substance. Substance doesn't mean anything more than something that can exist relatively independent of other things. The dog is not the grass it runs over. It is not the tree that it leans against. It's not the other dog. It has an independent existence. And in the case of non-living things, the molecule and the atom have independent existence. That is what we call a substance. And our definition or description of it 
is what we call its essence. So there is its reality or existence and its description in terms of what it is, its actuality, and what it can be, its matter. But besides the very essence of something, there are properties. The essence of something is one. A dog is one thing, not many things, one thing. A atom is one thing, not many things. But it has many properties. And it is through its properties that we sensed it. Our analysis of the properties gives us a notion of its unity, and that is its form, what it actually is. The dog is actually a four-legged canine, carnivorous animal, and anybody who's got a dog has a pretty good idea of what they really are and how they differ from a cat. But what are these properties? That's the third question we ask to list the properties, to describe the thing so that it appears to our naked, natural senses. And he pointed out that some nine things that we have to look for, and until we determine those, we have not described anything. First of all, it's a quantity. It fills, it's got parts to it. And that's why it can be measured and why mathematical models are so useful. The quantity indicates its matter, how much, how big it is, how many parts it has that form the whole. Then it has qualities. And these qualities are not only passive qualities like color and shape, but active qualities like what it can do. Let us say an atom of gold can do certain things in chemical combination. Those are the intrinsic elements of description. But everything that exists in our world is related to other bodies. And so there are extrinsic points. There are relations. That this thing, the dog's parents, are related to it as its parents. Its offspring are related to it as its puppies. The atom is related to the molecule into which it forms chemical combination. Then there are relational properties, which we call relation because they involve a relation, but something more. And first of all, there's action. Everything that changes also acts on other things. One atom attracts another, one animal eats another. And there's reception. Some things can be eaten and some things cannot be eaten. Things are to be acted on must also be receptive of the action. And then there's the relation, these three relations of place, position, and environment. One body is related to another by being in a place. It's related not by being an empty space, as people say. Empty space would be nothing. It's in place by its relation to other bodies. But in a given place, it can be in different positions. It can be upright or it can be turned on its head. And finally, 
its relation to the wider milieu, the environment, that has become so significant recently in environmentalism, the ecology, the kind of bodies that are not just next to it, do not give it place and position, but give it a general location, a regional location. Finally, there is time, which Aristotle says is the way that the irregular motions in nature are regulated by the most regular motions. For example, the changes on our Earth are regulated by the rotation of the Earth and the yearly orbital motion of the Earth. And we made clocks then to tell us time. Now Aristotle's point is that if we use these 10 categories, we can analyze and describe either at a general or particular level, all the things of our world as we experience them. And if we then use that foundation to interpret the more complicated things that are shown us by our telescopes and microscopes, we remain close to reality. And when we remain close to reality, the wonderful thing about that is that we come close to God, who made that reality, made it as it is, not as we think about it, but as it is. And so Aristotle's conclusion is that the very fact that the world changes means that it is not self-explanatory. Change has to go back to some fundamental prime mover something that is the cause of change, but does not itself change. And that is something like what we think God is. Take more exploration to understand something of God, and that's what metaphysics does. But natural science answers the first question about God. Does God exist? Yes, there is a first cause of the whole universe which is not the universe, not material, but the cause of it. Now, the essence of God, what he is, that is not the business of natural science, but his real existence is the business of science. Once we begin thinking in this way, modern science will no longer be divorced from theology. It will give to theology the conviction of the existence of the Creator, as it was for those people who invented modern science, for Galileo and Newton, and the divorce will be overcome. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.